If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible and the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this is our last sermon in the series that we have entitled Being Made New. And so we have been talking in this series about how to be made new, but today we're going to finish up the series by asking this question, by asking the question, why should I want to be made new? Why should that be my desire? Why should I do the hard work? Why should I fight my flesh? Why should I fight to be made new? If you've been with us in this sermon series, you know that we have learned how to be made new, that there are four things that we really have to get a grasp on. First, our flesh that fights being made new. Second, God's law shows us what it looks like to be made new. Third, there's our new heart that gives us the desire to be made new. And then fourthly, the indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us the power to be made new. But we're focusing on, number one, the flesh. That our flesh is going to fight our being made new. So we're going to end the series by asking this question. Why should I fight to be made new? Why is that something I should struggle with? Why should I endure in the struggle and continue to fight my flesh in order to be made new? Now, there are a lot of reasons why. I want to mention just two with you this morning. And those two reasons are this that you should fight to be made new, number one, because you were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God. And number two, the reason why, is because you were made for relationship with God. So you were made in the image of God, you were made for relationship with God. And we're going to talk about those two things throughout the biblical story. We're going to start here in the first chapter of the Bible, we're going to end today in the last chapter of the Bible. Wow, that's a lot. I figured the folks here for spring break could handle a little more stuff, right? I figured if you're here at this time, we're going to take this idea through four parts of the Bible. So you were made for, you were made in the image of God, you were made for a relationship with God, and we're going to look at it in terms of creation and fall, redemption and restoration, and how our being made in God's image and how our relationship with God has been affected and what it looks like in each one of these areas that form the biblical storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So let's do that together. First, looking at creation, you need to know, and if you're going to fight to be made new, you need to know that you were made in the image of God at creation and that you were made for relationship with God. So let's look at that together. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. I'll read verses 26 and 27. This will show us that we were made in the image of God. Hear now God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see very clearly there in verse 26, God announces his intention to make mankind in his image. And then in verse 27, he actually makes mankind, male and female, in his image. So you were made in the image of God. Okay, thank you. That's good to know. What does that mean? 
There's been a lot of ink spilled over what it means to be made in God's image. Right now, let me just mention this. There's a clue there in Genesis 1.26, if you could bring that back for me. When God says, let us make men in our image, then he says, in our likeness. So there's something about being made in the image of God, which means being like God, being made in the likeness of God. God has made everything else in all creation earlier in Genesis 1. And so in some sense... Mankind is more like God than the rest of all of creation. That's what that means. It means to be made in his likeness. Genesis 5 and verse 1, we're told again, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So humankind is made like God in some way that the rest of creation is not like God. Well, what does that look like? How is it that we're like God in a way that the rest of creation is not like God? Well, first, I would say in our knowledge. God knows all things. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And we as humans can know many true things. Now, you may think to yourself, well, there are other things in creation besides humans that know things. I think of Phineas, our dog. If you ask him if he wants to go for a walk, he runs to the front door of the house because that's where we leave when we're going on a walk. If you say, do you want to go for a ride, he runs to the back door of the house where the cars are parked because he understands ride. If you ask him if he wants something to eat, he goes to the kitchen because he knows that's where his bowl is and he gets fed. If you talk about a treat, he goes to his cabinet. It's his cabinet, and so he knows where the treats are. If you talk about his bed, he'll go and get in his bed because he knows where his bed is. So Phineas knows things, right? But humankind seems to do more things than the rest of God's creation. We are like God in our knowledge. We don't know all things as God does, but we can know many true things, and we know more things than the rest of God's creation. I would say we're also like God in our wisdom. And by our wisdom, I mean that God chooses the best goals and the best ways to achieve those goals. God chooses the best ends and the best means to achieve those ends and mankind seems to be better than the rest of creation at choosing the best goals and the best means to achieve those goals so we are like God in our knowledge and in our wisdom I would say the same thing about goodness God is the absolute standard of what is good So all God is and all God does is worthy of approval. It's worthy of being called good. And because we are made in the image of God, we as human beings are capable of great good. The same thing with love. The scripture teaches us God is love. God has eternally Loved in the sense that he has eternally given himself to others, first within the Trinity itself, then to his creation, God is eternally giving of himself to others. And because we're made in the image of God, we as human beings have a great capacity to love, to give of ourselves to benefit other people. And when we love in that way, in a self-sacrificial way, we are imaging what God is like. We are reflecting what God is like. How about righteousness and justice? We talk a lot about justice these days. 
God always does the right thing. God is always working to make things right. And we as humans have a great capacity to do the right thing and to work to make things just and right. And when we do that, we are imaging God. And we have that capacity because we're made in God's image. We could go on and on, right? Kindness. God is kind. We're made in his image, so we have a great capacity to be kind. We could talk about joy and peace and patience and mercy and grace. I would recommend that you think of it like this. If you're online, I have a beautiful robin's egg mirror purchased from the Walmart Supercenter on Cloverdale Road. I'm going to get No Row to come up and help me. Will you come help me, No Row? I would come there to you, but i got to stay in view of this camera here. Can you look in this mirror and tell me what you see? You see yourself, right? Here's No Row. And then this is an image of no row. It's a picture. If I touch this, you can't feel that, right? Because that's not really you. That's just a picture of you, an image of you. Right? Do you feel this? Do you feel this? All right. So here you are, and here's your image. This is a reflection of you. It's not you, but it looks like you, right? Thank you. That's what happens with us and with God. We're not God, but we're an image of God. We show God, we, we show what God looks like because we are made in his image and we reflect what he is like. When we reflect knowledge and wisdom, when we reflect goodness and love and righteous and justice, righteousness and justice and all the other ways that we can be like God, you were made in the image of God. Secondly, you were made for relationship with God. At the very beginning in creation, Genesis 1 and verse 31, at the end of this chapter, we read that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So God's creation is good. And in Genesis 2, he plants a garden and he puts the man in the garden. And there are all kinds of trees in the garden that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And there are these four rivers that flow around the garden and there's great beauty there's gold there's onyx there are aromatic resins and spices it looks good it smells good there's great beauty in the garden and the man and the woman in the garden had an unhindered relationship with God they walked with God in the cool of the day they enjoyed the very presence of God God was with them. It's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be in the very presence of God, to be in the very presence of pure love. It's hard for us to even imagine what that would be like. We read at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that the man and the woman were naked, yet they had no shame. They felt no shame. What's the significance of that? The man and the woman were totally exposed. They weren't hiding anything. They were totally known. Yet they were totally accepted by God, totally loved by him. They felt no shame because there was nothing to be ashamed of. They felt no fear. There was nothing to be afraid of. They, they didn't blame. There's nothing to blame each other for. There's no hate. There's no pain. There's no death. In the world, all these things made the garden a glorious place, but the best thing is that they were with God. 
They had unhindered relationship with no separation, face-to-face, direct relationship with God, unhindered in any way by sin in this perfect paradise. It's hard for us to imagine. Try to imagine it if you can. I, I can't even do it. I imagine maybe it's warm to be in the presence of pure love, to be totally known and totally accepted, maybe a little bit tingly, right? I feel that way around Lisa sometimes, warm, tingly, right? But it'd be like times of a billion to be in God's presence, totally known, totally loved, totally accepted. We can't even really describe it. Even the scripture you, you hear is grasping at terms. It tells us more in terms of what it's not. There's no shame. There's no blame. There's no fear. There's no hiding. There's no pain. There's no hate. There's no decay. There's no de- we talk of it in terms of what is not there. But it's hard to imagine having that kind of unbroken fellowship with God. In fact, we have that sense to us, don't we? You may not say it this way, but where I come from, folks have this phrase. They say, that ain't right. Maybe you've heard it before, at least felt that sentiment in your heart. When something happens, and that's just not the way things should be, folks where I'm from say, that ain't right. When parents have to bury their children. We look at that and say, that ain't right. Kids shouldn't die before their parents. And when we really look at it and think rightly, we begin to think that death itself is an unnatural intrusion into God's good creation. When people we know and love get get cancer and their body begins to break down, when we see that decay, When we see people die of accidents, maybe when they're still in their youth and their prime, there's something within us that says, that ain't right. When we see people hating one another, when we see people, and it's easier to see in other cultures, and we see people hate one another, we say, that ain't right. That's not the way it should be. When people experience great pain or they go through something hard, there's something within us that says, maybe not in these words, but we have this sentiment, that ain't right. Do you know why we respond that way? Do you know why that's the cry of our hearts? Do you know why the culture around us says that? Because we were made in the image of God. And God responds to those things in that way. But not only are we made in the image of God, so we have that response, but we were made for the perfection of Eden. We were made to live in a world where these things don't exist, so even people who are alienated from God look at things, and if they're broken and messed up enough, even people who are fallen and don't have knowledge in a relationship with God will say, that ain't right. So when you feel that way, when you're heart cries out that ain't right when you are in people in a culture and they begin to say hey that's not right that's not the way things should that ain't that's not something's not right about that it's important that we as the people of God affirm that and we tell the story whether it's to our own heart or we tell the story to other people what's the story Creation, God created all things good. You were made to live in a perfect world. That's why you cry out, it ain't right. 
fall. Things are broken and messed up because we rebelled against God and have not lived in the world the way God designed it to be lived. And that's why all this stuff that ain't right is here. Then ask people, do you have any hope about that? Because my hope is in the third thing in redemption. That God has taken on flesh and in the person of his son has begun to push back the effects of the fall. He lived a perfect life the way we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved and has conquered death itself and has begun the process of redemption of pushing back all the effects of the fall. That he pushes back shame and hate and fear and decay and even death. And then, of course, our great hope is in restoration, the new creation, that a day is coming that God will make all things right. It's important that we tell the story, tell that story to our own hearts. That's the big story of the Scripture. It's important that we're saying that in our culture. It's important that we're saying those things to our family, that we might tell the story. Well, let me keep going in the story. You know there was creation And then there was a fall, the man and the woman. They do rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3. How does that affect our being made in the image of God? And how does that reflect, how does that impact our relationship with God? Because those are the two things we're looking at. First, let's talk about relationship. That one's easy. When you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23, the man and the woman are banished from the garden. They're driven out of the garden. The relationship with God is broken. People after this no longer see God face to face. There's not this direct relationship unhindered by sin that Adam and Eve had in the garden. They're banished. They're driven out. People don't see God face to face anymore. I think of Moses in Exodus 33. He asked God, he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your face. And in Exodus 33, God says, Look, I'm going to put you in this rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by. You can see my back, but you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. We think it's mean sometimes that God doesn't just come deal with us directly face to face. We want that kind of interaction with God. Listen, it's for your protection. If God came to you face to face, you would be incinerated. You would be like Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. We would be incinerated. It's God's grace and his mercy that he withdraws from us because of our sin. I think of... Exodus 24, the elders of Israel go up and have a meal to confirm the covenant with God, and it says they see his feet. Because man in his fallen form no longer sees God face to face. We don't have that kind of direct relationship with him for our own good, for our own protection. We see forms of God, but no direct access to his face. I think of the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 20 when God descends on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments. Do you remember? He descends in thunder and lightning. He descends with smoke and fire. And they heard the very voice of God. And you know how they responded? We think we want to hear God speak. You know how the people responded when they heard God speak? They trembled in fear. 
They wanted God to stay away. They go to Moses and say, Moses, you go speak to God. <laughs> you go get the law from him and then come back and tell us. But we can't stand to be in his presence because we will die. Because of our sin, because of the broken relationship, we require a mediator between us and God. We can't really handle his purity and his holiness directly. So our relationship after the fall with God is broken. The image of God in us is distorted. So the relationship's broken, the image is distorted. We're still like God but not as much as we were before. That's represented by another mirror I have here. A broken mirror. It's been hit right in the middle of the hammer and you kind of see the spider. Nora, will you come help me? Can we come look again? Look in this mirror that's broken. Tell me, what do you see in there? You see yourself. Is it as clear as it was before? No, you can kind of see a little of yourself over here, a little over there, but it's not as clear as what it was before, is it? No. That's it. That's the way it is, right? That we still reflect the image of God, but not as clearly as we did before the fall. The image of God in us is distorted. Our knowledge is distorted. Our wisdom, even though it reflects what God is like, is distorted by sin. That our goodness and love reflect God, but they're distorted, that our righteousness, our ideas of justice are still there because we're made in the image of God, but they're distorted. Our kindness, our joy, our peace, our mercy and grace, all those things are distorted by the fall. Let's talk about redemption. I want to go on in the story. I want to keep moving because the relationship's been broken. The image is distorted. What happens when redemption comes into the world. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church after Jesus has lived the life that we should have lived, after he's died the death that we should have died. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And now Paul is writing this letter to the church. And he's writing about relationship. And he'll write to them about our being made in the image of God. And he'll write about those things after Jesus has done his work on the cross during this time of redemption. Look what he says, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all the fullness of God dwell in him. That's what we've been saying, right? That God took on flesh. All the fullness of God is contained there in Christ Jesus. Verse 20. And through him, through his Son, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And let me just stop right there and say, do you see that redemption involves all things? A lot of times when we think about redemption, we just think about the fact that God saves men's souls. And that is true. And I'm about to talk about that in a second. But let's not run past what verse 20 says. That Jesus, by his sacrificial death, that he is actually reconciling all things to God. If your articulation and belief in the gospel begins with men's sin and God's solution, you need to understand that if that's your 
articulation of the gospel, then your gospel is too small. The good news is bigger than that. It's wider than that. All the effects of sin that has created on the world, Romans 8 says that the creation is groaning because it's been subjected to frustration. And this is saying that Jesus is redeeming all things, all the effects of the fall. We sing at Christmas time a hymn that doesn't have to be just a Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And we sing that what? He has come to make his glories known as far as the curse is found. That's how broad the finished work of Christ on the cross is. So don't just think of it as God saving men's souls. It's bigger than that. The news is better than that. That's not even what I'm preaching on today. That was just a little bonus for you there. Let's just keep going, right? How does this affect our relationship? Josh read this earlier, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God. That's right, because we sinned. We're banished from the garden. We're kicked out of God's presence. Even faithful men like Moses who wanted to see God's face were told, you can't see my face and live because we're alienated from God from our sin. And we're enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's what we've been saying, that the fall created this problem where we have a broken relationship with God. Verse 22, but now he, that's God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish, And free from accusation. Oh, that's our identity now. Do you understand that? We're so aware of our sin and our shortcomings. But God, if we are in Christ Jesus, sees us. We are holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Got another mirror illustration. How many mirrors does he have up there? This was actually John Bunyan's. He talks about how every believer has a magic mirror. And that we look in the mirror and see our blemishes. We see our shortcomings. We see our faults. But as we look in the mirror, God looks at the other side of the mirror. And what does he see? Maybe Jesus written across there would have been a big clue for you, right? He sees the perfect record of Christ. And that though we who are full of blemishes and many shortcomings, and that even our best works are feeble and fall short, they're made perfect with God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the way God sees us now. So that we can come before him. So we can have renewed relationship with him. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just a declaration that he makes. He doesn't just declare us to be free of guilt. He doesn't just have Jesus take the punishment for our sin. He actually renews us in the image of God so that day by day we die more and more to sin and live more and more into Christ Jesus. That's what being made new is about, right? And look at how Paul writes about that in Colossians chapter 3. I don't even have to turn the page. Paul is writing here about people who have been redeemed, people who are being redeemed by God. What does it look like? What are the implications of being in God's family? And in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Do not lie to each other. Why? Since you have taken off your old self with its practices, watch verse 10, And have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Do you see that? That those who are in Christ Jesus, yes, there's this declaration that we're without accusation before God anymore, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we've taken off our own, so we put on this new stuff, which is being renewed in our knowledge in the image of the Creator. That our relationship with God is being made new by the finished work of Christ on the cross. But our image of God, which has been shattered, is being renewed so that we more and more look like God. Now, why is this important? Listen, this is very important. If you were with me in the beginning and I lost you, come back. Because we asked the question at the beginning, why should I want to be made new? Why is that something I should want? Why should I fight my flesh for that? Here's the answer to that question. Why should I fight my flesh to be made new? Because being made new increases my capacity for knowledge and wisdom. It increases my capacity for goodness and love. It increases my capacity for righteousness and justice. It increases my capacity for joy and peace and patience and mercy and grace. What does that mean? It means that if I'm renewed in the image of God, I'm a better husband, I'm a better father, I'm a better pastor, I'm a better citizen of this community, I'm a better man, because more and more I am becoming what God created me to be. It's what it means to be made new. Don't you want that? Don't you want to grow in all these areas? You increase in all these things as we are being made new, and that's why we fight our flesh. People hate this kind of language. I don't. I embrace it. We fight the flesh because I want to be the best version of me that I can be. Our culture talks about that, doesn't it? I want to be the best version of me I can be. Well, guess what? Being renewed in the image of God is what you were made to be. And so the best version of myself I can possibly be is to be made new in the image of God. And that's why we fight our flesh. But I want you to know that being made new and growing in all these areas is great. But there's something even better. There's something better than becoming a better person. There's something better than being a better man. There's something that we get more than that. And that's what we talked about before. It's this renewed relationship with God. Oh, it's not perfect in face-to-face like it was in Eden. But it's even better than being made new. It's not like it will be in heaven when when finally our flesh is done away with it because of our flesh and sin in us. It's not all that it's going to be. Oh, but it's being made new. And as we're made new, we can enjoy a closer relationship. We get closer to God. We have more intimacy with Him. And it's the greatest thing we can have. It's the greatest thing we can experience. You've already said it this morning in Psalm 16 in the call to worship. We said, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Don't you want that kind of fullness of joy? That's why the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. 
We're going to sing later the words of Psalm 84. We're going to sing, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the Lord. The song goes on as the psalm does and says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Listen, don't misunderstand. Don't think it's the courts that are great. Don't think it's the house of God that's great. But the psalmist wants to be there because God's there. Because he wants to be close to God. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. And our hearts yearn for that. Our body faints for it. Do you want to be close to God like that? You may say, listen, those psalms, are, they're all songs, they're poetry. I'm not really a poetry person. I want the facts. Okay. Flip back one page with me. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing. Paul, a great intellect, speaks multiple languages. Great man in philosophy debates other people. Brilliant man. The Apostle Paul, Philippians 3 and verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to thee, and depending on your translation, he says, the surpassing greatness, the surpassing value, the surpassing worth, the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. They're rubbish, which is too, too weak of a word to be used there compared to knowing Christ Jesus, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Do you hear the yearning in Paul? Do you want to know God like that and experience great joy in His presence? I talk to people about this. And if they're honest with me, and we talk long enough, we get to know each other, People say, they ask me, is that even possible? Can you really know joy? Is that, is that possible on this side of heaven? Well, it was possible for your brother David. He's the one in Psalm 16 who says, In your presence is fullness of joy. Your brother Korah. And Psalm 84 said, how lovely is your dwelling place. My heart and flesh cry out for God. Your brother Asaph in Psalm 73 said, but as for me, it is good to be near to God. Your brother Paul said, listen, I've experienced all these things and it's all dung compared to knowing Christ. It's true of your brother Paul. It is possible. People say, well, I don't experience God that way. And I think the appropriate answer is ask him for that. Seek him for that. The benediction today is going to be Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. And then Jesus says something like this. He says, if you then have a son or a child and they come to you, and they ask for bread, would you give them a stone? And of course the people would say no. And if your child comes to you and asks for fish for breakfast, that's what they ate, right? 
fast for fish for breakfast. Are you going to give him a snake? No. And then Jesus says this. If you who are evil, (laughs) broken, distorted images of God, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Ask him. Ask him for that. We had a good conversation about this just recently. And somebody said to me, you know, this is really hard. Let me just tell you personally for me, I'll tell you what I told this Personally for me, sometimes time with God is hard and it's dry and it's not fullness of joy in the presence of God. But that's true for me because of my own sin, because of my own flesh. But I must tell you, there are times that I see glimpses of this. Times that I am caught up with God and two hours can go by just like that and I don't even realize that it's gone. I hesitate to throw out that number because you're going to say two hours, I don't have that kind of time. How many movies have you seen lately? How many episodes of TV shows have you streamed? How many hours of basketball have you watched this weekend? Oh, that would hurt. And I don't say those things because movies or TV shows or basketball is bad. I just say that because you've got the time. And you're missing out on what is good and what is best. I don't want to leave without talking about the new creation, without talking about restoration. And at that time, our image will be fully restored. Our relationship with God will be fully restored. Revelation 21 and verse 3 tells us, the Apostle Paul writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Do you hear what he's saying? It's like the garden. God's living with us. He is with us face to face. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4 specifically says they will see his face. And it's saying that we have that close, unhindered relationship with God. No mediator but direct access to God. That we'll have that again like we had in the garden. That the relationship will be fully restored. What about our broken image, that distorted image? Pick up in verse he will wipe God will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said I am making all things new will be fully restored in the image of God not having sin distorting our knowledge or wisdom or goodness and love or righteousness and justice Revelation 22 and verse 3 specifically tells us there'll be no longer any curse, that there's no shame or fear or blame or hatred or pain in death. The image of God's fully restored in us. Our relationship with God is fully restored as he is with us directly face to face. Let me just say a word about that. Knowing that that is our future, knowing that that is where all things are going, that gives us great hope in the present moment. 
because things seem so dark, they seem so bad, but we have great hope because we know a day is coming that God's going to make all things right. It gives us the ability to persevere in the darkness. We can hang in there at the current time. We're able to endure hard things. And not only that, but because we're made in God's image and because we're his agents, when we see hard things and we see broken things, we can actually begin to push back the effects of the fall and be used of God to see redemption in this world now. And we can work hard to do that because we know a day is coming when he will absolutely make all things right, when all things will be made new. So let me just answer that question we had at the beginning. Why should I be made new? Why should I fight the fight? Why should I enter the struggle with my flesh? Well, because I want to be made new in the image of God. I want to grow in knowledge and wisdom and goodness and love and justice and, and mercy and kindness and all those things. I want the world to be made new and God uses us to do that as we're renewed in his image and walk in his ways. But listen to me, never lose sight of the fact that as great as those things are, it's not the greatest thing. The greatest thing is a closer relationship with God himself. There is no greater gift that he can give than to give us himself. Don't get so focused on the gifts that we forget the giver. Draw near to him. Fight to be made new so that you might more and more experience in his presence fullness of joy. Let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you that you're restoring us in your image. Thank you that we're being restored in our relationship with you. Please give us a desire for these things. Give us the means to fight so that we might be the people you created us to be and we might enjoy you forever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.